Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The climax of the college football season is upon us, and as usual, it is not without equal helpings of controversy and angst. With one loss Alabama's win over number one Georgia in the SEC championship game in Atlanta, it threw football's championship playoff into total disarray and chaos once again. Now when the smoke finally cleared the following Sunday afternoon, the four teams were standing were Michigan, Washington, Alabama, and Texas. So where was unbeaten ACC champion Florida State? Well, that's a good question. I guess you can say that a quarterback can't lose his job because of injury, but they sure could definitely miss out on playing for a national championship. Of the four teams that remained, it seems appropriate that one of the teams that are in the Final Four of college football is the University of Washington, who is the final champion of the Pac-12, who this season performed its swan song. Led by Heisman Trophy finalist Michael Penny Jr., the Huskies have a chance to do something that hasn't been done since 1991, return to Seattle and the shores of Lake Washington with a national championship. Hello, I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and welcoming each and every one of you to Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, the sports history podcast you didn't know you needed. In this all-new episode, we will talk about the University of Washington Huskies' last national championship run, which came 32 years ago and is considered the best team in Husky history. Also, we will touch on Southern Methodist University, who also claimed a conference championship this past weekend. And their first since 1984, two seasons before the program suffered the death penalty. In the NBA, oh how the mighty have fallen. The Detroit Pistons, one of the NBA's flagship franchises, have fallen on hard times and have fallen hard. At the time of this recording, the Pistons have lost 18 consecutive games and is still a considerable distance away from the all-time single season record. And to end the show, we will send a shout out to a little known Cincinnati Bengals quarterback. Former assistant coach and future NFL Hall of Fame coach Bill Walsh said of him, quote, he is maybe the most naturally gifted passer I ever saw, unquote. And he wasn't talking about Joe Montana or Steve Young. So who was, 
So who was he talking about? This episode shout out is the story of the NFL's greatest one hit wonder, Greg Cook. All that and much, much more on this new and improved edition of the Historically Speaking Sports podcast and member of the Sports History Network. At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. You are listening to the Sports History Podcast you didn't know you needed. The Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a podcast that places a historical twist on today's sports headlines. So just a reminder, if you happen to like what you hear and you would like to hear more, Please do not hesitate to like and subscribe to the podcast. And also, you could just drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or also, you could follow us on Twitter X at historicallysp2. Now, times were simpler in the 1990s. Yours truly was a freshman at Southern University. And we were still watching shows like Beverly Hills 90210 and The Cosby Show. Everything, at least from this vantage point some 32 years later, seemed simple. That is everything except determining who was the national champion in college football. This was during the days of what was called the mythical national champion, when the champion was determined not by what happened on the field, but who finished where on the two, na- on the two different national polls, the AP poll and the coaches poll or UPI poll. In 1991, one of the top teams in the country was the University of Washington, led by head coach Don James. One of the most underrated coaches ever in my estimation. He was in his 17th season in Seattle and led his Huskies to an undefeated 12-0 record in 1991. The team started ranked number 4 in the polls when the season began. The Huskies showcased a number of future NFL stars including defensive tackle Steve Entman, who won both the Outland Trophy and Lombardi Award, and he also racked up the UPI Lineman of the Year. 
Their quarterback was Billy Joe Holbert, who threw 22 touchdown passes against just 10 interceptions for just slightly less than 2,300 yards passing that year for the Huskies. In their undefeated 12-0 season, the Huskies had a couple of close calls, namely against conference rivals USC and California, but the biggest win came early in the season against then-national power Nebraska and Lincoln. The Huskies trailed the Huskers 14-6 at halftime, but in the second half, Washington, behind a hot Billy Joe Holbert, outscored Nebraska 30-7 and won going away 36-21. At the end of the year, the Huskies faced Michigan in the Rose Bowl and came away with a 34-14 win over the Wolverines. Yet, the Miami Hurricanes were also undefeated. They, and they were armed with Heisman Trophy winner Gino Toretta. And on New Year's Day, they shut out Nebraska 22 to nothing in the Orange Bowl. Now, when the dust settled that year, Miami was proclaimed the national champ in the AP poll, while Washington was determined the top team in the coaches poll, or UPI. Now, I know you're asking, why didn't they play each other in a bowl game? Well, if, if both teams were undefeated, well, you know, the Huskies, by winning the Pac-10, was contractually obligated to play in the Rose Bowl against the winner of the Big Ten, which, of course, was Michigan. That's just the way it was back then. So it was impossible for the two best teams in college football to face each other for all the marbles. The best way I could explain it was simply, that's just the way it was back then. Full of controversy and angst. <laughs> just like now. Also taking place in college football's conference championship weekend in the American Athletic Conference Championship game, or the artist formerly known as Conference USA, SMU defeated Tulane, last year's college football darlings, 26-14 in New Orleans. Now with the win, the Mustangs claimed their first conference championship since 1984, just two years away from receiving the death penalty from the NCAA for rampant recruiting violations that lasted decades and paying players under the table, over the table, in one door, out the other. For those who don't know, it was really, really bad. To put it in perspective, after one meeting of the Mustangs Boosters Club, one of his members said to another, quote, We have to go back to work to make some money. We all have to make payroll, unquote. That year, SMU was coached by third-year man Bobby Collins, the coach, not the comedian, the team went 10-2 and won a share of the Southwest Conference title with Houston and advanced to the Oroha Bowl where they faced Notre Dame coached by Jerry Faust. The Mustangs defeated the Irish 27-20 and no one could have imagined that it would be 25 years before SMU would return to another bowl game. In 1987, the NCAA slept SMU with a death penalty, which canceled the entire SMU season and eliminated all of its football scholarships. They were returned to Honolulu for the Hawaii Bowl in 2009 under head coach June Jones, the Amos Alonzo stag at a run-and-shoot offense, and they would defeat Nevada 45-10 in their bowl return. Over in the NBA, and we are actually talking about the NBA in December? On purpose? 
where the NBA has done something that actually has everyone talking and it's positive. Over the last several years, sports leagues in this country have tried different things to drum up more viewers and more publicity, but it seems that the NBA has been more successful than the other leagues. Last year, it was the first year of the postseason play-in tournament where the last four teams in playoff contention play in a tournament style for the last two spots of each conference. It was very exciting and interesting, and as the cynic and traditionalist as I am, I was sort of lukewarm on the subject, but I became a fan instantly. This year was the birth of the in-season tournament where teams were to be placed in three groups of five teams in each conference and play each other in a round-robin tournament to determine the top teams in each group and a wild card. Those teams would be placed in a knockout bracket to determine an in-season tournament champion. The players each will receive $500,000 each by, the winning, by winning the tournament, which will be played in Las Vegas. And so far, it has been a rousing success. And again, I was sort of skeptical. But it has done what it was supposed to do. Drum up interest in the NBA during the stretch run of the ongoing NFL season. Now, Major League Baseball, the NFL, and NHL have tried similar things for, and for all intents and purposes, failed. And failed miserably. In 2003, Major League Baseball had the brilliant idea of making the All-Star Game relevant. How did they do this? Well, the league that won the All-Star Game would have home field in the World Series. Some people were for it. Others, like myself, was totally against it. This was a move that was in response to what had happened the season before in Milwaukee when the All-Star Game was called in the 11th or 12th inning and just ruled a tie, mostly because nobody really wanted to play anymore. Classic overreaction. The All-Star Game determining home field advantage in the World Series actually lasted through 2016. Why that long, I will never know. As for the NFL, I have one question. Why on God's green earth do we still play the Pro Bowl? To be completely honest, I haven't even seen the Pro Bowl since maybe 1997 or maybe 1998. Now, it's a flag football game and dodgeball among other things. Bro, what are we doing? You can say what you want about the NBA, but when it comes to improving his product, they seem to have the magic touch. For now. Also in the NBA, and oh how the mighty have fallen. I consider the Detroit Pistons one of the six flagship franchises in the NBA. The others, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Boston Celtics, the New York Knicks, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the Chicago Bulls. When these teams are contending for a championship, this, the league just seems better. The Celtics, Lakers, and Sixers are premier teams this season. Meanwhile, the Bulls and Knicks are steadily improving. Yet, the Detroit Pistons, well, they're another story. As of recording time, the Pistons are in the midst of an 18-game losing streak and surprisingly is not the longest losing streak in Pistons history. 
Once Detroit lost 21 in a row, which stretched between 1979-1980 season and the 80-81 season. The Pistons lost the final 14 games of the 79-80 campaign, then started the year losing their first seven. The dubious record is held by the quote-unquote trust the process Philadelphia 76ers who lost 28 in a row. Philly lost the final 10 games of the 2014-2015 season, then started the next year losing his first 18 to start the 2015-16 season. Yet the longest single season record is 26 straight, done by the 2010-2011 Cleveland Cavaliers in year one of after LeBron took his talents to South Beach, and once again, the Philadelphia 76ers in 2013-2014 season. But we can talk about some good things in Philadelphia these days. The Philadelphia Eagles, who lost this past weekend to the San Francisco 49ers, still have the best record in the NFL and is primed for a Super Bowl run nonetheless. The Eagles are a historical anomaly because teams that lose the Super Bowl tend to not go back the following season, and in some cases, don't even make the playoffs. Yet this season is different in the city of brotherly love. Led by coach Nick Sirianni and quarterback Jalen Hurts, the Eagles still have the best record in the NFL and is looking to do something that hasn't been done in the NFL in 30 years. The Eagles are looking to become the first team since the 1993 Buffalo Bills to return to the Super Bowl the season after losing the big game. In 1993, the Bills, coming off of a humiliating 52-17 loss to the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl 27, returned a season later for a rematch with the Cowboys in Super Bowl 28. Therefore, looking for their first Super Bowl win and avoid becoming the only team to lose four straight Super Bowls. Well, as everybody knows, things didn't go as planned. The Bills couldn't find a way to stop Super Bowl MVP Emmitt Smith, and the Cowboys won their second straight, beating the Bills 30-17 in Atlanta. But what if the Eagles go back to the Super Bowl a season after coming so close, and this time, winning it all? Well, that feat hadn't been done in over 50 years, and that was done in back-to-back -back seasons. In 1971, the Dallas Cowboys reached their first Super Bowl, Super Bowl V in Miami. In a mistake, turnover, and penalty-filled game, the Cowboys lost to the Baltimore Colts 16-13 on a last-second field goal. Yet the very next season, Dallas returned to the big game and dismantled the Miami Dolphins 24-3 in New Orleans for their first Super Bowl win. Coming off of that loss in Super Bowl VI to the Dolphins, armed with an undefeated season, came into the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum and defeated Washington 14-7 for their first Super Bowl title in the seventh edition of Super Sunday. It has been a while since a team returned to the Super Bowl season after losing it and even longer for one to return and win it. It's almost as if you have to play perfect to pull that off. Coming up after this short break, 
We will send a shout out to a former Cincinnati Bengals quarterback that may have been the NFL's greatest one-shot wonder. A player that put the expansion Bengals on the map and could have been the quarterback most closely associated with the West Coast offense. The story of the Bengals and their star-crossed signal caller, Greg Cook. That's next. This is Historically Speaking Sports, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football, Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s, Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday's Sports, Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories, and Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! To finish off this episode of Historically Speaking Sports, we usually send a shout out to a former player or historic event or a team that I'm reminded of when something happens in sports, in the sports world, that sports fans, I feel, need to be reminded of. And in this case, we'll take a look at a former Cincinnati Bengals quarterback. This season, current Cincinnati Bengals signal caller Joe Burrow is out for the season with a wrist injury. Now, when it was announced that he was going to miss the remainder of the season, I was suddenly reminded of a young Bengals signal caller who missed a lot of time during his very short career. Now, when you think of great Bengals quarterbacks, names like Boomer Esiason, Carson Palmer, and Ken Anderson immediately come to mind. However, in the early days of the Bengals, in only their second season of existence, they drafted a local hero from the University of Cincinnati named Greg Cook with the fifth pick overall in the, in the 1969 AFL-NFL Common Draft. Now at the time, a young offensive coach for the Bengals named Bill Walsh scouted and suggested to Bengals Hall of Fame coach Paul Brown to draft this kid out of UC. Yes, that Bill Walsh, who would go on to revolutionize the NFL with his West Coast offense. He scouted Cook while he was at while he was a Bearcat at the University of Cincinnati and persuaded Brown to draft their rangy 6'3", 215-pound quarterback. This almost immediately paid dividends. The Bengals, still considered an AFL expansion team, quickly started winning. Winning their first three games of 1969 season. That in itself was quite a feat considering this is actually their second season of existence. Cook and the Bengals edged fellow expansion brethren Miami Dolphins 27-21 in Cincinnati as Cook threw a pair of touchdown passes in the victory in the first week of the season. Then in week two, Cook passed for three touchdowns and ran for another as the Bengals ran past the San Diego Chargers 34-20. In the third game, the Bengals faced the Chiefs. In the third quarter, with the Bengals trailing 13-10 and Cook already with a touchdown pass, he was sacked by Chief linebacker Jim Lynch. Cook got up holding his throwing arm. He was later replaced by backup quarterback Sam Weish. 
Yeah, that Sam Weiss, who would go on to coach the Bengals to Super Bowl 23 in Miami against the 49ers. Now, since, since he would go on to beat the Chiefs that afternoon 24-19, but the damage had been done. On the tackle by Lynch, he felt his throwing shoulder pop, and he wasn't the same after that. It was determined that he had a torn rotator cuff in his throwing shoulder. The Bengals finished the 1969 season with a record of 4-9-1, which was a considerable improvement from their 3-11 mark in their inaugural season of 1968. As for Cook, in limited action for the remainder of that season, his 1,854 yards passing and wins over the Chiefs and later the Raiders, two of the best three teams in the AFL that season, earned him AFL Rookie of the Year honors. But his shoulder would ail him for the remainder of his short career. Cook recalled, quote, I took cortisone shots and played in pain, but the shoulder hadn't started to deteriorate yet. So it could still function. I still had the strength. I felt obligated to finish the season. I had gotten off to a good start and I didn't want to relinquish that, unquote. After three operations proved futile, Cook retired in 1973. The man who scouted him at Cincinnati, Bill Walsh, said that he was by far the best pure passer he had ever seen. Now think about that. He coached Joe Montana and Steve Young. But this quarterback, who had a very short career that was ended with injuries, is the one that Bill Walsh, of all people, pointed out he was the best he had ever seen. His 9.4 yards per pass attempt and 17.5 yards per completion are rookie records that still stands to this day. And Greg Cook is one of the greatest what-ifs of all time. What would the 1970s NFL would have been like had Greg Cook stayed healthy? Would the Steelers be the team of the 70s? Or would it have been the Bengals? You have to remember the Bengals were a consistent playoff team in the early 1970s, winning the brand new AFC Central in 1970. Could the West Coast offense as we know it today could have been called instead the Ohio River offense? Of course we would never know any of these, but to be certain, Greg Cook, whose promising career was cut short with injury, was pro football's greatest one-shot wonder. And that will do it for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, coming to you from the Bill King Memorial Studio in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises, located in suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. To get more content of Historically Speaking Sports, you can check us out on Twitter X at historicallysp2 or you can send us a line at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And if you have not done so already, please, please subscribe to the show. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Hell, tell a passerby on the street about us if you think they like sports history. And until the next episode, stay blessed, stay cool. Later.
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast. <laughs>